Uh, the start of the week and plenty from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Malcolm MacArthur arrived in the park that day. When he was in Tenerife, he had decided that the only way that he could recover his money was to emulate what the IRA had been doing all that summer, and that is to kind of conduct armed robberies. He had absolutely no training. He had no life skills uh, in, in anything, really, and not least being an armed robber, and he didn't know how to go about it. Tommy got specialised orthopaedic surgery when he was nine. I can honestly say getting that surgery for him is one of my proudest achievements in life. Mm-hmm. Jimmy... You cheered for Ronan O'Gara's La Rochelle. Where are you from and why did you cheer for them? I'm from Turles and I shouted for Ronan O'Gara's team. I did. And we'll start in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne. Grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. Gubu. The events that led to the tragic murders of two young Irish people and the man who committed those murders, Malcolm MacArthur. Journalist Harry McGee was discussing his new book, The Murderer and the Taoiseach. Well, it was a scandal that shocked a nation, destabilised a government and defined an era of Irish politics. An aristocrat on a killing spree, a nationwide manhunt and the deaths of Bridie Gargan and Donald Dunn, two young people with their lives ahead of them. Well, in The murder and the Taoiseach, journalist Harry McGee revisits the notorious Malcolm MacArthur case and delves into those goo-boo times. Harry is here. Good morning to you, Harry. Hi, Claire. How are you? This started for you with a podcast which you, you made about the case. Yes, it was a podcast. Goo-boo was a seven-part podcast series that we ran in the Irish Times last year, really to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the Gubu scandal. And it was a scandal. It was a sensational scandal. And uh, just revisiting it last year, it, it read like the, the plot of a, of a Harlan Coben yeah. uh, special with extraordinary twists and turns. But the, di- the difference was that it was completely real mm-hmm. from beginning to end. And I'm sure the people who lived through it at the time were saying to themselves, this is completely unreal, but it's real and it's happening in real time. The coincidences, the conspiracy theories, the characters that kind of emerged during the course of the investigation were extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, and you and I grew up with this story and we heard about it as we were uh, coming up along as children and, and teenagers. But he was always depicted as a bit of an enigma, wasn't he, Malcolm MacArthur? And you found out a good bit about his his background and his personal relationships with his family and so on. Uh, absolutely, yeah. He, he was born in County Meath and his family had moved over from Scotland. His grandparents had moved from Scotland in 1906 and had no connection with County Meath but bought a huge house there and a large uh, estate of land and they were very, very well off. They were a very, very wealthy family who did extraordinarily well. But as the century um, progressed, the fortunes of the family diminished. So Malcolm was born in 1946. He was an only child. Uh, His parents were both... uh, uh, Castle Catholics, essentially, from a big house with a big estate. And he lived a kind of gilded childhood materially. But it was an unhappy childhood from a personal point of view because it seems that both of his parents were quite distant. He was uh, sent to a governess from a very early age. His mother had a very distant relationship with him. His father was an austere, uh, uh, stern, uh, uh, slightly um, um, aloof uh, kind of a character. And uh, he, Malcolm and himself, as Malcolm became older, Older, uh, they began to row more frequently. Now, Malcolm's um, um, uncles and his dad and his grandparents had all gone to public schools in England and Scotland, and he was meant to go to Ampleforth, which is a very prestigious uh, Benedictine college in Yorkshire. But the family money was beginning to run out, and he went to the local Christian Brothers School in uh, County Meath. He was uh, not sporty. 
he was quiet, he was studious, he was bookish and he stood out from all of the other mm-hmm. students who were there who would have primarily been kind of country lads uh, going to the local Christian Brothers School. And then he wanted to go to Stanford University in California to do his degree, but that didn't happen either uh, by dint of circumstance. So he went to a small college uh, called Davis in California, where he got his degree in 1967. And he arrived back to Ireland uh, with very few friends and knowing very few people and kind of uh, installed himself as this kind of flaneur, a very extravagant looking um, uh, person who were dicky bows, uh, silk cravats, who had a very cut glass accent and hung around the kind of bohemian and fashionable uh, cafes and bars of Dublin and frequented Trinity College a lot as and well. he didn't work, did he, when he came back from the States he, after university? No, and that was a, a source of conflict between himself and his father. His father wanted him to work. Uh, Malcolm wasn't inclined to work. He uh, signed on to a postgraduate degree in Trinity, which he never started uh, and which he never completed and spent his time reading in libraries and um, frequenting kind of bars uh, like uh, the Bailey in Dublin City Centre. And spending the money. And spending the money. Now, he didn't have very much money until his dad died. His dad died in 1971. Uh, There was a long and protracted uh, probate. Uh, But when the inheritance, uh, when the probate was completed, he got what the equivalent of about a million euro in today's term from the estate. And that allowed him to live a kind of uh, a... A life of leisure. He didn't work and he spent his time travelling abroad, reading uh, and frequenting kind of bars and restaurants. So then in 1982, Malcolm MacArthur was in a relationship and living abroad. He met a woman called Brenda Little and they had a very strong uh, relationship. They never married. They had a son who was born in 1975. And money was beginning to get tight uh, towards the end of the 1970s. And he was he was panicking about this. Well, this was it. He hadn't worked. He had a lot of money. Uh, the 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 money was uh, beginning to run out. He had kind of essentially frittered away his inheritance. So they decided that they'd move to Tenerife, uh, which was a a relatively new place for Irish uh, holidaymakers. Uh, but Tenerife was cheaper than Ireland, so they thought they could live cheaper over there. Mm-hmm. But he didn't really reveal the extent. Uh, that his fortune had dwindled to Brenda Little and it was over there that he realised that he had no money left. So he decided that he would need to come up with some kind of dramatic plan in order to recover his fortunes. So that's how he ends up back in Ireland in the summer of 1982. Now you've included his full confession statement in the back of the book which I think makes for chilling reading because it is so detailed, it is so matter of fact and it gives us his perspective on on what happened. But I want to talk about Bridie Gargan in the Phoenix Park. Will you Talk us through that day and what happened. Yeah, Bridie Gargan was um, a young woman. She was 27 years of age. She was from near Dunshockland in County Meath. Uh, She was, by all accounts, a a quiet but uh, sunny uh, young uh, woman who had won a gold medal uh, as a nurse and was studying to be a midwife. Uh, She had just finished a long shift in St. James's Hospital and on her way back to her apartment in Castlenock decided uh, that she would uh, stop in the Phoenix Park and sunbathe. It was a beautiful day. In fact, it was a beautiful summer. Uh, there was a heat wave that summer. So she stopped and uh, near the American ambassador's residence, which is in the middle uh, of the park, uh, she found uh, an isolated spot uh, surrounded by long uh, uh, grass. Uh, she parked her car and she began sunbathing beside it. By dint of the most tragic uh, coincidence, Malcolm MacArthur arrived in the park that day. When he was in Tenerife, he had decided that the only way that he could recover his money was to emulate what the IRA had been doing all that summer, and that is to kind of conduct armed robberies. He had absolutely 
no training. He had no life skills uh, in, in anything, really, and not least being an armed robber. And he didn't know how to go about it. So when he set about it, he set about it in the most brutal, imaginable way. So um, he decided that he would need to get a car and he would also need to get a gun. And in order to get the car, he was prepared to kill uh, in order to steal a car. And it just did, that did show that his mind was dissociated at the time because that particular plan had no bearing to any kind of reality that any sane person would have. So he arrived in the Phoenix Park on that beautiful summer's day looking for a car. He spent about an hour almost wandering around the park trying to see if he could find what he described as an easy prey, somebody from whom he could steal the car. And then he finally spotted this young woman sunbathing near her Renault 5 car uh, near the American ambassador's residence. And he, he snuck up uh, from tree to tree. Uh, he was almost like a, a uh, pantomime villain from a Don Busico play as he ran from tree to tree trying to hide himself. Um, and then he approached the woman. He produced an imitation shotgun that he had fashioned himself and he demanded to take her car now, one of the big mysteries that has never been answered is why he just didn't take the car and depart and leave the woman there. But for some reason, he also ordered her to get into the car. And once she got into the car, it seems that she began to panic a little bit. And then he attacked her in the most brutal and savage uh, fashion. It just so happened that there was a, a man uh, in his 40s uh, called Paddy Byrne, originally from County Leash, who worked as a gardener in the American ambassador's residence. He was just finishing his day's work and walking along the inside of the uh, perimeter wall of uh, Deerfield, which is the residence, uh, when he saw Malcolm MacArthur approaching the car. He saw him pushing the nurse into the car and then he saw the car beginning to rock. And at the time, he thought it might have been a row between a husband and wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend. But then he began to think that something more sinister was afoot. So he sprinted across from the wall to the car, asked Malcolm MacArthur what was going on. And it ended up that Malcolm MacArthur arrived out of the car and pointed the uh, pistol at him. Uh, Paddy Byrne, who was a very big man and a very brave man, grabbed the pistol. Uh, but Malcolm MacArthur managed to wrench it back from him. Paddy Byrne uh, fell to the ground. And uh, Malcolm MacArthur told him uh, to back away or he'd blow his, his head off, essentially. Uh, so Paddy Byrne backed away and Malcolm MacArthur made good uh, his escape. And the escape in itself was, was bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, another of these extraordinary coincidences happened. He, he, he rushed, uh, he, he sped off down uh, what's known as the Jogger's Path, which is a dirt track that people run along in the Phoenix Park in the car, uh, spewing up a, a big cloud of dust because the day was so warm. So he headed for one of the exits uh, for the park near Island Bridge. And anybody who knows the Phoenix Park will know all the exits uh, were uh, uh, designed uh, two centuries ago and weren't designed for the modern car. So the exit was only big enough for one car. There was a queue of traffic waiting to get out. Malcolm MacArthur was panicking. Uh, he tried to overtake all the cars. They blocked him off. But just then, uh, a Waverley ambulance, an ambulance passed by. They saw the sticker on the car uh, which was the St. James's Hospital sticker because Bridie Gargan worked there. And they saw this man who seemed to be neatly dressed with a beard sitting in the front seat. Uh, they saw the, the blood in the back of the car and there was a lot of blood. So, so they assumed that it was a medic or a doctor taking somebody to hospital. So they put on the blue lights and gave the car a blue light escort to St. To, to St. James's Hospital. Uh, um, and uh, just as they arrived into the hospital, 
um, the uh, car that was following did a U-turn and sped off again. So the ambulance driver thought this was very strange and he reported it to the Gordy immediately. So Malcolm MacArthur drove down to Dolphin's Barn. He abandoned the car in a laneway. He ran into a travel agent in a panic and uh, asked uh, the woman to, uh, ordered the woman in a very cut-glass accent to uh, get him a taxi to uh, Black Rock or to Dunlira. She told him there were buses passing by uh, and before she could uh, telephone for a taxi, he ran out the door and jumped onto a bus. But unfortunately, the bus was going in the wrong direction uh, for him. Uh, unfortunately, it was going to the north side rather than to the south side. So he ended up going on a bus that uh, terminated in Finglas. And he ended up going into a pub in and cleaning Finglas, himself, and cleaning himself, shaving, bu- buying razors, and hacking off his beard without any shaving cream. Then three days later, MacArthur was in Eden Derry, where farmer Donald Dunn was selling a shotgun. He so he got a bus from Dublin to, to Eden Derry. Uh, he arrived very late on a Saturday night, too late to call to Donald Dunn's house. So he loped around the town uh, on Saturday and he ended up uh, at a place called the Harbour, which is almost like a spur uh, from the Grand Canal where you get barges and boats berthed. And he, he sat there and slept there for the night. So the following morning, he contacted Donald, uh, Donald Dunn. Donald Dunn was a young man, a farmer, loved shooting, loved dogs, loved farming, was a GAA player, you know, a, a person who was a, a pillar of, of that community. He arrived in and he took Malcolm MacArthur out to the uh, firing range about three or four miles outside the town on the bog uh, so uh, he could demonstrate this uh, shotgun that he was selling. And unfortunately, once he handed Malcolm MacArthur the shotgun, uh, Malcolm MacArthur shot him at point-blank uh, uh, range. Uh, poor Donald Dunn died immediately. Malcolm MacArthur stole his car and then drove back into Dublin. Now, as it happened, Offaly were playing in the Leinster final in Hurling that day. And as um, Malcolm MacArthur was driving back into Dublin, a, a, a group of Offaly supporters in another car spotted the Offaly registration on his car and followed his car all the way into Dublin because they didn't know the geography of Dublin and they thought that this person was going to Crow Park to the game. And but that, that person knew the, the direction so they were following him for yeah, guidance. Yes, so they, they followed him into the city centre. Yeah. He abandoned the car. They realised he wasn't going to the game but they were able to give the Gordy good information as to where Malcolm MacArthur went. He ended up near the central bank uh, on Dame Street essentially. But his, reti- his, his target now because the, he, he needed the car and he needed the gun because he was going to steal money essentially back to his original ambition and he targeted this retired US diplomat. Yes and um, so perhaps the initial plan was to rob banks and post offices as the IRA had done but he he decided that he would go for easier marks so he wouldn't have known all that many people but one of the people he did know uh, was this wealthy retired diplomat called Harry Beeling who had been a diplomat with the US diplomatic services and retired to Ireland uh, towards the end of the 1960s. He lived in a, a sumptuous house in uh, Kleine. It was a really nice house with a kind of a castellated turret arch that went across the, 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 the doors. So anybody who goes up uh, Victoria Road uh, will see this arch in front of them as they go up. So Malcolm MacArthur came, uh, knocked on the door, uh, said he had been at a number of parties there uh, maybe seven or eight years beforehand and remembered the view and wanted to take a photograph of the view, Maria. But once he got in, he produced a shotgun and uh, there was an extraordinary uh, um, kind of minuet scene that went on for about two or three hours uh, where both men uh, uh, drank, um, well, they, they, Harry Beeling drank a couple of vodkas uh, to steady his nerves and had this very polite conversation with a man sitting in an armchair wielding a shotgun uh, who was demanding a thousand pounds off him. Harry Beeling said, I don't have a thousand pounds. 
and Malcolm MacArthur told him well write me a cheque which was bizarre in itself because mm-hmm. uh, nobody <laughs> who is robbing something is uh, robs by, by cheque so luckily for Harry Beeling he had some training um, as a, a, a in self-defence and he realised the seriousness of the situation and he picked his moment and when Malcolm MacArthur wasn't looking he bolted out the front door and made good his escape and by doing that he probably saved his life because anybody who had encountered Malcolm MacArthur until then had had ended up unfortunately dead. So how did he end up then in the Attorney General's house? Well, once he came out of Harry Beeling's house, I think he realised that uh, that he had nowhere else to go. So he he held he he stopped a car which gave him a lift down to um, Dorky and to Bullock Harbour. And he decided then that he was going to stay with the Attorney General. So he walked to Pilot View and he uh, knocked on Paddy Connolly's door. And Paddy Connolly, who knew him very well, Paddy Connolly was a very good friend with Malcolm MacArthur's uh, partner, Brenda Little. They, um, uh, he, he invited him in as a house guest. He didn't have an inkling of what Malcolm MacArthur was up to. And Malcolm MacArthur stayed with him for about 10 days uh, while one of the biggest manhunts in Irish uh, criminal history was underway. And just to, to abbreviate then <clears throat> to the end of the, of the story, uh, Malcolm MacArthur was eventually captured. The Attorney General phoned the Taoiseach Charlie Hawhey at the time but got him on a bad line and tried to explain to him what had happened. The Taoiseach um, agreed that the Attorney General should continue on with his holiday plans. He was going to the United States Yes. So uh, what happened was, yes, so on the Friday, the August 13th, um, Malcolm MacArthur was captured by the guards and they um, took him down to Dorky Station. Paddy Connolly was in a state of deep shock. He just said, I couldn't even begin to describe how dumbfounded I was at this news because to him, Malcolm MacArthur was the most gentle person. And of course, Malcolm MacArthur had never uh, been in trouble with the guards before or afterwards. So during this episode, something obviously had happened. So he had the onerous task of ringing Charlie Hawhey. Charlie Hawhey was in his island bolt hole of Inishviklon yeah. at the time. There was only one line to, that got in there. You had to go through the Ballyferrisher Exchange, a very bad line. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Charlie Hawhey um, might have had a few drinks taken as well uh, by uh, the accounts of those who were close to him. The line was very bad and I think that Paddy Connolly might not have given him all of the information because Paddy Connolly was due to go on his holidays the next day and he really wanted to go on his holiday. So Charlie Hawhey's understanding of the conversation uh, was uh, that this man had been arrested. He didn't take it on board that he had been arrested in the residence of the Attorney General, nor did he, nor did Paddy Connolly tell him uh, that a shotgun had also been found in the house. So, uh, reputedly, Charlie Hawhey said at the end of that conversation, bon voyage. Harry McGee from Today with Claire Byrne. His book, The Murderer and the Taoiseach, is out now. And on the live line, Colm O'Mungoyne was looking at the Leinster La Rochelle rugby game at the weekend. His first caller was Dennis. Oh, look, uh, you know, still looking at what might have been and, uh, you know, some of the little things that happened during the game, uh, like our captain uh, Ryan going off uh, injured uh, and the change that seemed to follow from that. And then the bad luck of hitting the post twice and a couple of of out-of-character mistakes with long kicks and straight into touch. So we're going through all that. If you like, it's it's almost like after a death. You know, you're you're looking at what might have been. uh, uh, But uh, we were... 
when I rang this morning, I was very disappointed to hear, but not surprised, that there were Munster supporters uh, shouting for La Rochelle at the game. Now, for anyone who isn't, is unaware of the, of the match you're talking about, Dennis, this is the Heineken Cup final between Leinster not playing on the pitch that day, but very involved in the setup is Johnny Sexton. And on the other side of things for La Rochelle, Ronan O'Gara, their head coach, and there is, I suppose, a famous sporting rivalry between Johnny Sexton and Ronan O'Gara going all the way back to 2009 and during their time competing for the same shirt. So you you say you were surprised but not disappointed to hear that Munster oh, no, fans I, were, were cheering for La Rochelle rather than yeah, Leinster. Yeah, I'm a bit disappointed. Now, in fairness, Raj was a a, 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 a wonderful player for Munster and he's a wonderful coach. Uh, but uh, over the years, I've seen that and it's, it's, uh, it's disappointing because I certainly have supported Munster uh, when before Leinster became good. I mean, I was always a Leinster supporter. We were, uh, a few of us used to go up on a Friday night to Johnnybrook when there'd only be six or seven thousand there uh, and uh, we, we we you know we weren't getting places the way Munster were uh, 20 years ago but uh, uh, I, I um, have have uh, regularly uh, uh, gone to see I was at the Pioneer Cup final Munster's first one against Harlequins in, in and was re- deeply disappointed for them they were just beaten by a point uh, and uh, they had a similar wonderful performance in 2004 against Wasps in Lansdowne Road and a wonderful game of rugby and Wasps just uh, held and I would have been very disappointed for Munster uh, on occasion. Right. And, and, and just to translate again Dennis for anyone who is unaware Ronan O'Gara's initials ROG have earned him the nickname Rog so when you refer interchangeably to Ronan O'Gara and Rog it's the former Ireland number 10 and La Rochelle coach Ronan O'Gara you're talking to. Now, I met somebody on a sideline of another sporting disappointment over the weekend in under-12's GAA match, an irate Leinster fan who turned around. He was incensed, absolutely incensed, that compounding his disappointment, there was a pocket of Munster fans sitting in front of him. And at first when he saw them, he didn't know they were Munster fans because they were dressed in hats and scarves and La Rochelle gear and it was only when they opened their mouths to cheer on the team that he realised they were Munster fans. Well, yeah, that'd be a shock. Yeah, that'd be a shock. Uh, uh, and uh, but like it's, I mean, I, I was I was saying to your producer there. Uh, I remember in two thousand and eight, we were over at a Leinster, a dead rubber, as it turned out, a Leinster. Uh, Leicester game in Leicester and uh, Leicester were beaten that day and afterwards we were down in a sports bar and Munster were playing and we actually were uh, it was separate in our support of Munster at that stage being an Irish side and the Leicester lads came over to us and they said we're very surprised to see you supporting Munster because this time last year they had a reciprocal match in Leicester against Munster in the same competition and after the match Leinster were playing on the television and the Munster supporters were all roaring for whoever was playing against Leinster Well that's Dennis then Jimmy called Cullum. He's not anti-Leinster, he's just pro-O'Gara. Jimmy, you cheered for Ronan O'Gara's La Rochelle. Where are you from and why did you cheer for them? I'm from Turles, Ballingarry in Turles. And I shouted for Ronan O'Gara's team, I did. And why were you not shouting for the Irish team? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't about the Irish or the French or anything like that. I just... Uh, 
shouted for Ronan O'Gara's team and his, and his, and his management career. And that's the way I was about it, you know. And so you're, you're very much pro Ronan O'Gara, but are you anti Leinster? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Like, we're on the, we're on the border of Tip and Kilkenny. Like, we wouldn't, there's no issues about that at all. Have you ever Leinster cheered for Kilkenny? No, I haven't. I haven't, no. Right, so are you, uh, have you ever cheered for a team outside of Munster in any sporting occasion? Yeah, sure I have. I, like, last year, we, 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 we shouted for, for Galway in the, in the football final because they hadn't won it in so long, you know? And what is it about Ronan O'Gara that makes you cheer for him? He's managing a team that's, you know, from all over the world and, you know, came at quite the price to build up the La Rochelle team he's built up as against Leinster, who are predominantly made up of Irish players. Of course they are, but you must remember what he has done there in his two years of term, you know, in his, in, in, since he's gone over there. Like, he's, he's really pulled it out of the out of the ditch for them, like, you know. And would this be common am- amongst other people, Jimmy? Do you know of other Munster fans who are, is it all just pro Ronan O'Gara or, as at least anecdotally on social media, there's an intense well, anti-Leinster sentiment that likes seeing them lose. It just likes seeing Leinster have the smile wiped off their face on the big day. No, I wouldn't say that, no. I wouldn't say that at all. It's it's sport, really, you know, and you can show whoever you like, really, when it when when it all boils down, you know. But yeah, we did show for, we did show for Ronan. So I suppose when it comes, you, com- can, you com- can't forget, you can't you can't forget what Ronan has done in in times past, you know, and like you'd be you'd be wishing him well on on his next stage of his journey. You know what I mean? All right. Well, what about for the players who played for Leinster? who have a grand slam on behalf of Ireland under their belt, who went out and, and gave joy to Munster, Ulster, Connacht, Leinster fans alike. Yeah, look, that's, that's, that's just the way it is and that's just sport in, in general, you know. And I, I would have said, you know, I'm sure there, there's, there's plenty of Leinster fans that would, that would never shout for Munster either. That's Jimmy on the live line with Colm O'Wungoyne. And on today with Claire Byrne in the morning, news was breaking about that fine of over one billion euro for Facebook parent company Meta. So now to that news breaking in the last few minutes, the Facebook parent company Meta has been fined 1.2 billion euro by the Irish Data Protection Commission. And with more on this, I'm joined in the studio by RTE's work and technology correspondent Brian O'Donovan. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Claire. So an extraordinary fine. Is it the largest ever EU privacy fine? This is massive, 1.2 billion euro. The previous record had been set of a 746 million euro fine which was imposed on Amazon in 2021 but this beats that and it's being imposed on Meta and it's for breaches relating to the transfer of personal data from the EU to the US. Now as part of this decision and some would say maybe the bigger part other than this enormous sum of money is an order that Meta has to suspend the transfer of data from the EU to the US. It's been given five months to comply with that order. The company's also been given six months to cease the unlawful processing, including storage in the US, of personal data of Europeans that's already been transferred over. So you might be thinking, my God, this is huge. This means that Meta's going to have to remove everything they've already transferred. They can't transfer everything anymore. 
But we have to take a breath here. There's a couple of issues. First off, they're being given time to do this. They've been given a couple of months to comply with this. Meta, in the last few minutes, has issued a statement saying, we utterly disagree with this. We are going to appeal this. What's more, we're going to go to the courts to look for a stay so that even this time we've been given to implement this, we're going to look for even more time to pause the clock. And in the background of all of this, Claire, they are working on a new transfer agreement between the US and the EU that is expected to kick in at some point later this year. Once that kicks in, Meta is fine again and they can start up those transfers. So right now it's a clock exercise and it really is a game of how long it's going to take for all these things to kick in. And do we have an explanation around why Facebook was doing this? What was the advantage for them? I'm going to take you back to 2013 and a name you'll remember, Edward Snowden. Do you remember he was the US Mm -hmm. whistleblower in the US who said that US authorities were spying on the Facebook users, on social media users in the United States. So when that happened in 2013, European privacy campaigners became very concerned. One in particular, an Austrian man by the name of Max Schrems. And he said, hang on a minute, if all this data being generated in the EU is then being shipped over to the US and the US are spying on it, then I'm concerned as a European that my data is not being kept private. That triggered a series of court battles. It ultimately ended up in the EU Court of Justice and they struck down a thing called the Privacy Shield, which was this agreement between the US and the EU for the transfer of data. Basically, Europe saying, look, guys, we have this whistleblower saying you're spying on everything. We don't trust you anymore. We have to end this current agreement. We have to come up with a new agreement. Once that agreement was shot down, individual companies started using individual legal frameworks, their own individual legal tools called contracts. These contracts were individual to each company. They were using them. They were using them as the mechanism, as the tool to transfer data. As part of this investigation, the Irish Data Protection Commission looked into the legal tools being used by Facebook. Today, they've ruled that they have breached the data protection rules and hence the fine and hence the order to suspend. Okay, but as you say, Meta fully intend and have already announced that they are going to appeal this ruling in its entirety. Yeah, and a really strongly worded statement issued by Meta just in the last few minutes. We would appeal this ruling, including the unjustified an unnecessary fine. We will seek a stay of the orders through the courts. We are disappointed to have been singled out for using the same legal mechanisms as thousands of other companies use across Europe. The decision is flawed, unjustified and sets a dangerous precedent. Meta also pointing out an interesting fact in this. You may recall from previous data protection rulings that the way it works is the lead authority usually is Ireland because Mm -hmm. all these tech companies have their bases here. So Ireland will come up with its decision. It then has to go to its fellow EU regulators. They can object. They can say, no, you need to find them more. You need to find them less. In this instance, the Irish regulator didn't want to impose a fine. But the other regulators, some of them said, no, 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 you have to impose a fine. And they were told ultimately that they did have to impose a fine. Meta singling in on that fact, saying it raises serious questions about the entire regulatory process. Brian O'Donovan from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Ray Darcy was talking to Kathleen Watkins about Patrick Keelty becoming the new presenter of The Late Late Show. Well, we finally heard the worst kept secret in showbiz over the weekend. Patrick Keelty will be the new presenter of The Late Late Show after Ryan Tuberty hangs up his hat this Friday. Um, And who better to assess the fourth host of the longest running chat show in the world than our next guest, Kathleen Watkins, who was by Gayburn's side for the 37 years uh, he was at the helm of The Late Late Show. Kathleen, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ray. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, you watch these things with interest, I would imagine, more than most of us. Well, so many people are coming up to me in the last weeks saying, who did I think of? What did I think? I knew nothing more than anybody else because I was just an ordinary member of the public <laughs> uh, wondering who is going to be the next host. And uh, I think it's a very big deal for Patrick. I, I'm sure he'll be very good. He's 
young enough, he's old enough, and he has experience of audiences and people and so on. But um, I think it may be a different kind of deal in 2023. Mm. I think the audiences have changed, different generation, all of that. Uh, but again, as I say, he's old enough and young enough and I'm, I'm sure he'll handle it very well. But it is a very big deal. It's coming at you down the line every single week. And I read in the paper yesterday that he lives in London so he may be commuting. And um, I know RTE is loaded with very artistic and talented people and he'll have a very good team here nevertheless you're the face and you're out there sitting on the chair talking to people Um, and the other thing is that people are often very hooked up on big names big names in my book and I'm just a viewer don't always deliver and very often the man in the street who has a lovely story or a very interesting story uh, can really make it on the Late Late Show. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do, I um, do. It's, and, and, and I remember Gay saying to me once, it was, it was, he loved ordinary people with extraordinary stories. They were his favourites. Ex- exactly. If you can find them, and there are so many out there with extraordinary stories, and they're really interesting and they tell them so well. Mm. Um, but, but again, uh, I, I know people are inclined to go for big names now. Um, Graham Norton has, you know, masses of people who are all well known and so on. Uh, but that that show is really so fantastic. It's yes. it's just light entertainment at its best. And, and it's lively. It's back back in Gay's time, of course, people used to make the trip from America over to London, and then they'd hop across the Irish Sea and and do the Late Late Show. That was quite common, wasn't it? I know. I know. <laughs> yes, they don't do that so much anymore. Patrick Kilty famously was on, when he was a young comedian, appeared on The Late Late Show. Now, I don't know if my memory is serving me well or not, but did he attempt to do an impersonation of gay on The Late Late Show? I have no recollection no of recollection. that at all. I, I only did. met Patrick once um, yeah. with gay down the country somewhere. Um, so that's the only time I met him. Yeah. I have no recollection of that. In fact, uh, you know, my, my recollection of some things is, is very good and of other things yeah. not very good. Yeah. Um, certain things stood out over the year. But I, I just want to say something that people find amazing when I say it, that the Late Late Show and the Gay Burns Show did not enter our house. Um, that was all work in the office, like the dentist or the doctor or whatever. They did that over there in their office where that took place. But but the house was no place for that. Uh-huh. So um, so home was home. So he wouldn't home have come home and said, we'd a little whippersnapper of a comedian on uh, from up north and he tried to do an impersonation of me. He wouldn't have said that because you didn't have those no, type of conversations. No, yes, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Now, now, now of course... Door being, closed. Yeah, door st- closed and, and dinner on the table. Table, yes. You but, but you would have been aware of the draw on, on Gay's, I suppose, his energy... Um, that he gave it an awful lot over the years, um, and yes, he had, he had, uh, he was incredibly fit, and he had terrific energy and a very clear, good brain. And um, yeah, he, he, uh, I, I often think now when I see things on television, mostly television, and I can almost hear him saying. Um, uh, that's too long, or yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. that uh, there's nobody in charge, <laughs> or everybody is speaking too fast, or whatever. <laughs>
Kathleen Watkins on The Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, an initiative to care for people with cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is the most common childhood acquired, lifelong physical disability and many individuals with the condition face significant and unnecessary challenges in their daily lives, including problems with movement, speech and other body systems. Well, a new first of its kind initiative aims to make Ireland a global leader when it comes to care and research in this area. It's backed by $12.5 million in funding from a group of donors, including John and Patrick Collison, the brothers behind the payments company Stripe. A five-year programme, it aims to change the trajectory of people's lives. And joining me now is Lily Collison, who's on the board of the foundation and mother of John, Patrick, and Tommy, who has cerebral palsy, and also Rachel Byrne, the executive director of the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. You're both very welcome. It's lovely to have you with us here today. Rachel, as I said there, this is the most common childhood-acquired lifelong physical Disability. I know every case is different, but is there a spectrum when it comes to this condition? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having us on today, Claire. Um, you know, cerebral palsy is caused by damage or abnormalities of the brain before, during or shortly after birth. So it's not caused by one single thing. So what we see is a spectrum of severity. So you could have a child who would need a wheelchair and an adult who needs a wheelchair for mobility or also children and adults who may walk Um, independently. So it really is a spectrum which really starts to impact the interventions that are needed and Mm -hmm. why we need to have specific and individualised treatments. Now for you Lily this is obviously very personal. Your son Tommy was born in 1994 is that right? And when did his diagnosis come? His diagnosis came a year later so he um, um, like we sort of in his early months we could see there was you know developmental delay but his diagnosis came then when he was about a year old. Mm-hmm. And how difficult was it to get from the point where you were seeing some developmental problems to getting the diagnosis? It's funny you ask that, Claire, because I describe that period between, you know, sort of in the, er- in the early time where you're seeing there's something going on, but you haven't a diagnosis. It's like being on a wobble board, you know, sort of when you're existing in that area where you're conscious of something but until you get the diagnosis. So in a sense, the diagnosis, you know, sort of like it's not what you want to hear, but in a sense, it's a relief because you know what you're dealing with. And at least from there, with a diagnosis, you can go forward. And that's why early diagnosis is really important. And did you know in that moment, if you can take your mind back there, what you were dealing with? It's funny, when Tommy received the diagnosis of cerebral palsy, I didn't even know what the term meant. Like I'd heard it, but I actually didn't know what it meant. And um, that was part of the uh, problem I had. And um, the other problem is it's a very complex condition and it develops over the years. So the child at one is different to the child at three. Like the problems, like it's kind of, um, it's, you know, I've read it, you know, it's just add time, you know. So the child is born with a brain injury, but the problems really only emerge with time. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that quite complex to understand, you know, the different problems. So that's why I just went and researched it and, and learned as much as I could about it. And hence why afterwards I wrote the book that I would have wanted, you know, back all those years ago when Tommy was first diagnosed. So you did a lot of work yourself, but what what was the care, what were the services like back in 1995? 
um, the services, like we had good therapy services, you know, so the, uh, you know, the services back, you know, all those years ago, because like Tommy's almost 30 now at this stage, were good. Like what we lacked uh, was the specialised orthopaedic surgery, you know, for CP and say neurosurgery for CP. There's, you know, um, you know, specialised CP surgery that really makes a difference. And like Tommy got specialised orthopaedic surgery when he was nine. And I can honestly say getting the right surgery, the right orthopaedic surgery at the right time has helped shape, has, has helped shape his life. And I can honestly say getting that surgery for him is one of my proudest achievements in life. Mm -hmm. But it, did it take an awful lot of work to get that? Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of, like, I had done a lot of reading. I had read a book about the surgeon we eventually um, went to and he is he was recognised at the time as the leading CP surge, orthopaedic surgeon in the world. And we were very lucky to be able to, um, go, you know, access treatment by him. And like, that's really, like, I care about Tommy, but I care about all the other Tommies in Ireland, you mm. know, and that's because you know, you know better than anybody mm. that not everybody will be able yeah, to do that yeah. or, or access but a surgeon like you you did back then. Yeah, but there's no reason, like we have brilliant people here in Ireland. There's no reason we can't develop that CP specialism here in Ireland, and that's part of the program we're um, announcing today. Uh, and that, that is what you're trying to do. Yeah. And executive director of CPF, Rachel Byrne, explained what cerebral palsy funding is doing. You know, we've been uh, developing hubs at three of the leading institutions in the country. So UCC, uh, Trinity and RCSI and really working with Children's Health Ireland to ensure that the implementation of that work will go into clinical practice mm -hmm. and make sure it reaches the community and so that every individual, infant, child, adult with cerebral palsy gets the care that they need. How long is this going to take? What so, are your hopes? Sure. So the initial uh, part of the program is for five years. And in that five years, um, you know, it's ambitious what we're trying to achieve, but we strongly believe that we can get the best practice implemented so it becomes standard of care. Mm -hmm. What is step one? Is it that early diagnosis? Yeah. And because without that diagnosis, it's really hard then to plan the interventions and to create the roadmap for families and individuals with cerebral palsy as to what comes next. And if, fortunately, we've actually started early detection here in the country. And in January this year, five of the main maternity hospitals, uh, the three in Dublin, um, in Cork and Limerick, have started uh, doing best practice for early detection. And is that that comes from this initiative, Lily, Absolutely. does it? Yeah, yeah. And like already the foundation, um, uh, with foundation, over 100 clinicians are trained in Ireland already in early detection and intervention, you know, so that training has already, you know, been rolled out, you know. And thankfully, you know, um, the maternity hospitals have been so welcoming of this initiative, you know, like it's it's fabulous because like um, working with the foundation, but there's great collaboration because we have great clinicians here, you know, we have good researchers and it's just really joined up thinking around a condition like mm. the specialist, the specialism that's needed for cerebral palsy care. That's what we're building up. Um, and but the problem is, if you put in place all of those practices around early diagnosis, you can imagine the frustration then if the services aren't there, or the care isn't there, or the orthopaedic surgeon isn't there with the necessary skills. 
Absolutely. And so that's why we're creating three hubs, actually. So uh, when we look at early detection intervention, uh, that hub is going to be and lead, led out of Cork. But Trinity College here in Dublin, as well as Children's Health Ireland, is really focused on 3 to 17. So what do we need to do? Well, absolutely, we need to think about our musculoskeletal and orthopaedic uh, interventions and practices. We need to think about the community. We need to think about these children being able to access equipment. And so that's part of the program as well, bringing mm. those best evidence practices into that age group as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose people who have cerebral palsy listening to this and the parents, they, they'll probably feel, feel very fortunate that the Collison brothers and other donors are involved in something like this. But Lily, do you believe that this is something the state should be doing? Look, um, and it's not just the Collison brothers. It's, you know, this is a collaboration of a wide group of people like the foundation, the hospitals, the um, universities. So this is, you know, this is a, and a lot of work has, has gone into this. I think rather than uh, look at it as a, as a gap, it's an opportunity. We have an opportunity here to go in and focus around uh, condition and like if it works for cerebral palsy there are lots of other uh, conditions and like we're not talking about um, cerebral palsy in infancy we're talking about um, children adolescents and adults you mm -hmm. know so it's um, looking at improved care for cerebral palsy across the lifespan because it is a lifespan condition you know there, you know there, there's currently no cure for cerebral palsy but with better treatment and getting the right treatments at the right time that's what's crucial and that's what we're trying to is build up a very good clinical pathway around cerebral palsy across the lifespan. And research too because there's yeah. a lot about this that yeah. isn't known isn't yeah. that right? Yeah yeah that it'll be a very much a research and a clinical program. And Claire asked Lily how Tommy is doing now. Mm -hmm. And how is Tommy doing now? You said he's 30, is he? He's almost 30, yeah. Um, like, um, he's almost 30. He's living a full life, working in um, uh, tech and about to be married, you know. And like, I'm very... I, like, I'm very delighted that his CP is not defining his life and it's not holding him back. You know what I mean? He has a very good outcome relative to his CP type and its severity, you know. And that's what I want for all the Tommies in Ireland, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the Tommies and the female Tommies. <laughs> well, perhaps he would be a really good advocate for people, you know, also to demonstrate, you know, how you yeah. can live your life with yeah. successful yeah. early interventions. With the right treatments at the right time, the outcome can be very good. You know, people can live full lives, you know, so but it's just getting the right treatments at the right time. Mm -hmm. In your book that you reference there, Pure Grit, you spoke about how parents should avoid wrapping their children in, in cotton yeah. wool. Will you just explain that to us? But it's just that you're kind of doing the child no service by being overprotective, you know what I mean? That you have to, like I always um, felt that you have to build up the child's confidence to just go out there and do things, you know, to go out there and live a full life. But if you're overprotective, that just because a child has a condition, don't wrap them in cotton wool. Mm -hmm. Even you know, though you might feel like doing yeah, it. Yeah, it kind of, it's counterintuitive in some senses, but you, it's what you really have to do. And when we interviewed um, the people for Pure Grit, that was the common thread throughout all the stories that their parents, their families didn't wrap them in cotton wool. They just, you know, believed in them and and support them to go out and flourish. Mm -hmm. Lily Collison from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, a great story about Irish-born Emily Anderson, who was known as Queen of Codes. Jackie Equina popped in to talk about Emily's secret and fascinating life. 
So how did Jackie first discover Emily Anderson? She's she's she's. In UCD, it's at the same time, because there's a couple of things that named after her, like the concert hall, etc. And I knew that she existed and she'd been a professor of German. But I was working on another book, Martin Moore McDonough book, and rooting around in the, in the governing body minutes and came across her resignation letter from 1918. But actually, there were two letters. The first was the, the standard, you know, resignation letter. I wish to resign my post. Many thanks for all your courtesies to me. But the second letter was actually one that she had written to the college registrar at the time. And he was a man called Monsignor Hines, later became president of UCG. But he was her friend and confidant. And in the second letter, she was much more forthcoming about what she was actually resigning her post for, what she was going to do. And as I read the letter, um, I just thought, this is not on anybody's radar. Nobody knows about this. Because what she actually said was, I've been told that people with language skills are much needed for intelligence work, military intelligence work. Since I have the skills, I have been asked to go and I feel it is my duty to do so at this present crisis. I am to go to London and be trained and then I'm to be sent to the front in France. And I thought... What? Now, What's this it, all about? This is like it's like, a, it's like in a fire station and yeah. the bells ringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, we got one. We got a story. Yeah, uh, yeah. And a, and a possible, you know, big backstory. So, what year was the the letter dated? Roughly, it was July nineteen eighteen. Okay, so we're into the end of World yeah, War yeah, One, yeah. and she. Uh, but she'd been approached a year previous to that. And yes. in the letter, she says that you will recall what happened last summer. So even in the summer of 1917, she'd only just come back to Galway to teach as a first professor of German. She'd been actually headhunted by at that point and dithered and dillied and dallied. She wasn't yeah. sure about giving up. Like she's a professor at the age of 24. She's a professor of German. So are you going to give that up? As it turned out, she didn't think twice. She okay. was gone. She now, was out of there. That, so the, some guy in a suit taps her on the shoulder and said, yeah. I'd like to talk to you about something. Very yes. interesting. Yes. Okay, before we go into that, her launching her into this spy craft, yeah. let's go back to the beginning. Who was she? Okay, so she was born and raised in Galway, um, the daughter of the university president, Monsignor, uh, he was a prof- uh, Professor Anderson, mm-hmm. Professor of Physics, actually, initially, and then he became president. So she and her siblings grew up in the quadrangle in Galway, which I'm sure you're familiar with, sure. Ryan. It's it's a beautiful, you know, ancient yeah. quadrangle. And she lived in the president's residence there all of her life, basically. She grew up there. She went to college there and studied modern languages, was an exceptional languages student, like really off the charts, good. Uh, first class honours and everything and um, then subsequently decided to go abroad to study went to Berlin went to Marburg in Germany and perfected her languages mad into languages but also had that side of her brain from her father the mathematical side of her brain and then when you add into that the third aspect of it was her love of music she loved music was a fine pianist what you have is in essence a code breaker in the making ready to hit the ground running when the opportunity arose so she but to all intents and purposes if you or any of your listeners were to look her up on the internet, Google her or whatever, mm-hmm. what you'll find is, you know, she was professor of German. She was a musicologist who translated the letters of Beethoven and Mozart. And she left her post as professor to join the Foreign Office in 1920. But for Foreign Office, put inverted yeah. commas around <laughs> Foreign Office, okay. because clearly that's not what she was doing at all. And as I followed the breadcrumbs from that letter that I discovered, I realised that this was one hell of a code breaker, that she was at the top of the tree. So Ryan asked Jackie to explain how Emily got into code breaking. 
I think it's very much all roads lead to Cambridge. Okay, okay as, is, as is so often with the way with spies. <laughs> with intelligence, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So her father had studied at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, and his friend and best man at his wedding, in fact, was the professor of mathematics at Cambridge. So he's well connected. Sure. When the British intelligence service, the nucleus of of it, they were starting to set up a, a signals intelligence service, and um, to listen in on the enemy. Sure. When they started looking for people, they went to the old school network or the old boys network and when they'd exhausted the old boys network because most of them were either at the front or dead they had to start looking for the the new girls network and that's how they found Emily and many other uh, women of that the university type in inverted commas is what they were talked about and they were all lecturers or professors in most cases just lecturers they hadn't promoted women to professorships at that stage. And they recruited language graduates primarily because language graduates are good at um, looking at language patterns, at repetitions, and they're good at, at obviously looking at the different nuances of different languages. So it was mostly language professors and lecturers they recruited. And she was one of four who were recruited in 1917 with a view to being trained and sent to France in 1918. All of them university professors around the UK, mostly in Oxford and Cambridge. And take us there. When she eventually gets over to the UK, what's she doing? She's first, initially, she's trained as as a codebreaker. She's trained in the mechanics of looking at what to you and I would appear like a page of gobbledygook, which is numbers. You know, there are groups of five numbers and letters. And you're given this from the receiver who listens with headphones on and is listening to the the dot, 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 and translates those Morse into letters and numbers. And then they hand it to you, the code breaker. And you're supposed to look at this and go, all right, that's German. And this is what's been said. And you have to do feats of unimaginable mental gymnastics to figure out what is on that page. And most people, certainly me, forget it. There's no way I'd have a clue. But Emily Anderson sat down and with the brain she had, this formidable brain, Mm. languages, maths and music. Music is all about repetitions and patterns. So she looks at this page and she starts to see links and starts to see commonalities and starts to make sense of it. And within a couple of weeks of her being there for training, they all realised in the, the, she went to military intelligence, MI1B it was called. So in military intelligence, all the military guys are looking at her going, this guy's She's she's off the charts. This woman, yeah. she's she, we have to hold on to her. So she she ends up not going to France in the end because of the fact that the war had shifted by that stage. The Americans had come in, Battle of the Marne. Mm. It's game over for the Germans, and they know it. So, and they but the British intelligence had seen Anderson's progress and said we need to hold on to her. She's way too good to let go. So she stays in London, and that's her career evolves from there. And in the interwar years. In the interwar years, she's one of the very few women who they recruit. After the war ends, pretty much all of the women are told, thanks very much, girls, off you go. <laughs> Home and do your duty now for the empire yeah. and get married and have lovely children. Yes. And don't ever speak about what you did. And none of them did. None of them ever, ever broke rank. None of them ever spoke about what they had done. But there were a few key women that they knew they needed to hold on to. And Anderson was one of only four that they actually kept on in 1919 when what was the nucleus of what we now call GCHQ, which is Government Communications Headquarters, which controls all of the intelligence service. Yes, exactly. When that um, was set up, she was one of the first women to to join that network. But she held back for quite a while 
before accepting the job. And remember, she still has her professorship in Galway because yes. they had said you can come back if it doesn't work out. Um, so she has a decision to make. Does she go back to Galway and become a professor of German or does she stay in the intelligence service? And she makes that decision only after key negotiations about her status and her salary. Well, now, was that, to use the more modern parlance, gender specific in terms of the row she had? I mean, you outline this in the book. So talk us through a little bit about uh, coming up against this sort of, now look here, darling, this isn't going yes, to happen. You know, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a patriarchal yes. uh, world, as we know. Yeah. Um, and here she was, this extraordinary brain. Mm. And they're kind of, we need you, but we certainly don't want to pay you the same as the men. Precisely. So yeah, talk yeah, to me about yeah. how she conquered that dragon. Um, I think she was, she was exceptional. You know, I mean, the records are pretty clear about this. I mean, all of the women were unhappy that they were going to be paid about half what their male counterparts were paid. And this is absolutely the case. Yes. But not only that, it was also about grade. They wouldn't appoint them to a professional grade. And the lowest professional grade you could be appointed to in the Foreign Office, which Mm. is the most grade conscious of all government departments then and now, Foreign Office would only appoint men to the position of junior assistant. But that's an important position because after that, senior assistant, assistant secretary, all those positions. And she would not take the job unless they made her a junior assistant because there were other junior assistants in her section and she was better than them and she knew it and they knew it. So they said, no, we can't possibly appoint you to a junior assistant. There's never been a, a female junior assistant in the entire British service and we're not going to start with you. And she said, well, then I'm not going to stay. And she literally put a gun to their head. Well, not literally, but yeah. <laughs> metaphorically, she yes. put a gun to their head and said, well, if you want me, I won't accept the job unless you make me a junior assistant and I want a pay increase. And Ryan asked Jackie about Emily's time at Bletchley Park. She was there for just under a year. Um, uh, she left uh, in uh, Ju- July of, of 1940, um, basically because she was needed elsewhere. She, she was one of the first people, in fact, to go to Bletchley. Um, she went there... Uh, in the second group that uh, that went into Bletchley Park, yes. there was about fifteen in the first group. She was in and the just second. Just to explain, this was where they were trying to crack to the decode enigma all of Enigma. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Yes, Jackie Quinn from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time. <laughs> <laughs>